Well, we've been going through the Lord's Prayer, and the Lord's Prayer is the powerhouse for becoming the person Jesus intends for you to become. It's the powerhouse for living in right in light of the kingdom of God that Jesus brings. And if you want to begin to practice the way of Jesus, you must learn and pray the Lord's Prayer. The early church recognized the significance and importance of the Lord's Prayer. And they actually had um, their baptismal candidates memorize it and then recite it coming out of the baptism waters. So that the very first words that came out of their mouths was the Lord's Prayer. In this moment where they marked out their life in Christ, that they'd been buried with him and raised to new life, the first words that came out would be, Father in heaven. This prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples would be so close to their hearts and their lives. So it was significant to the early church. And nearly uh, 1,500 years later, at the Synod of Bern, was an assembly of Christian leaders that wanted to consolidate the work of the Reformation. And they stated that the Lord's Prayer is the water bucket that we use to draw out from the fountain of grace of Jesus Christ. And then we pour that into our hearts. And that's what we've been trying to do as we go through the Lord's Prayer. We're going to look at today the fifth petition out of six that Jesus gives us in the Lord's Prayer. And it's probably the most outrageous. It's probably the most uh, shameless request we can make. But it taps into this attempt to draw from this fountain of grace that is available through Jesus. And so, while Daniel read it earlier, I'm going to invite you to read with me. And I totally get some of you learned a different uh, version or translation of uh, the Lord's Prayer. And in, um, in particular, on this petition, you learned trespasses, you learned sins. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the NIV. If you want to say trespasses, all good. All right? So this is what Jesus says. This then is how you should pray. And I invite you to read it with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful prayer that we are invited to live into. And we ask that this morning we would be able to hear from you, your heart for our lives, that you'd give us understanding into the scriptures. So Lord, we quiet our minds and say, our minds and say, speak, Lord, your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning I want to ask a question that we've been asking each time we examine one of these petitions. What exactly are we asking for in this fifth petition? Our Father in heaven, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. What are we asking for? I want to suggest we're asking for two things. We're asking for God's forgiveness and for help in forgiving others. For help in forgiving others. Let's look at this first part. We are asking for God's forgiveness. We are asking for God to wipe clean our debt. We're asking for God to forgive our failures. Matthew uses this word debt. And this word isn't a religious word in, in Greek. Debt is this word, uh, 
ophelimata, and it refers to debt like a moral or financial obligation to pay. A debt is a failure to pay. You didn't pay what you needed to, meaning the debt here is like a failure to fulfill your moral or financial obligation. And so Jesus, when he teaches his disciples this prayer, is tapping into this common Jewish thought that related to sin. In Jesus' day, this common perspective was that sin created a deposit of debt before God. Meanwhile, righteous deeds contributed assets before God. And this isn't to say that it earned like salvation. It's just that in terms of a relationship with God, there was these, there was these deposits of debt and also of assets that accumulated. And Frederick Dale Bruner, he explains, he says, sins were the merits that separated and righteous deeds merits that connected. The corporate name for these separating demerits was debts. That's what Jesus is tapping into. So sin built up this wall between you and God, but righteous deeds seemed to form this bridge that connected you to God. And what Jesus is doing in this teaching us his prayers, he's taking these ideas that are swirling around people's minds when it comes to sin and says, when you pray, ask our Father in heaven to wipe clean all your debts. Ask him to wipe them clean. Origen was this church father who lived during the second and third century, and he highlighted this threefold nature of debt that, that, that we owe, and he highlighted these three. We owe a debt to God, we owe a debt to others, and we owe a debt to ourselves. We owe, we owe a debt to God, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to trust him. God is creator, he is father, he is redeemer, and humanity was meant to know him and be in relationship with him, to love him, enjoy him, and to trust him for all of their needs and to obey him. Paul, in Romans 1, will highlight this as talking about the obedience of faith. We are in debt for our failures to trust him, to obey. Think of all the things that Jesus has called us to, just alone in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I, Jesus, tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. You have heard it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone that looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Each failure to obey puts us in a debt to God. But we also owe a debt to others. To love our neighbors, the poor, the newcomer, our parents, children, the elderly, those in power over us, because human beings are made in the image of God. They have dignity and worth just by being a human being. They are worthy of that love and respect. And every time we fail to love our neighbor, to love others, it puts us in debt. We also owe a debt to ourselves, though. We also are created in the image of God. And we are to love ourselves as God does, to care for and appreciate ourselves, our bodies, as God does. The people of God are this temple, a place where he sees fit to dwell. And we are to care for our lives and nourish them so that God can dwell and have free reign in our lives. We are to care and develop ourselves so that we can partner with God in the inner work he wants to do in us, to become the people 
who look like Jesus, people who bear the fruit of the Spirit, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so each failure to do this is another moment where we incur debt. And it is for this reason that Origen will say that there's not a single hour, day, or night where we are not a debtor. And if you look back at your life, you look back at this year, this week, and you think through all the different moments where we failed or we incurred a debt for our failure to do what we should have done with, for God, for others, for ourselves, or failing to avoid what we should not have done before God, others, or ourselves, you realize how much debt accumulates over our life. And you feel that. And if we were to allow ourselves to feel it, the significance of it in its fullness, it would be crushing. And for that reason, many of us actually don't like to think about that. We try to avoid that. It's very understandable that we would seek to do that. But forgive us our debts is this request for God to relate on a, to us on the basis of mercy. Don't give us as we deserve. And so we pray our Father in heaven, wipe clean our debts. Remember them no more. Don't deal with us on the basis of what we deserve, but on the basis of your mercy. Forgive our failure to live rightly related to you and others. And all throughout Scripture, we get this beautiful picture of God's heart to do this. In Psalm 32, the psalmist will write in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. All those three things, sin is like missing the mark. Iniquity is this twistiness. It's twisting what was, what was something that was meant to be for one thing into something else and corrupting it. And transgressions, there's this willful rebellion beyond a boundary. Any kind of sin, he's saying, I confessed it all to you. And what does he say? And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Psalm 103 will say that God does not treat us as our sins deserved or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are, above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This is his heart. The greatest and most glorious place where you and I see that God does not treat us as we deserve, but instead demonstrate a great love, completely and conclusively removing sin from us is at the cross, through Jesus. Colossians 2 puts it like this. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. That debt Jesus takes, he removes it. And this is wonderful news. This is amazing news. So that's one of the things we're asking for. Father in heaven, wipe clean our debt. And we get to be reminded that Jesus has. The second thing we're asking for, though, is help with forgiving others. This is what Jesus gets at when he says, uh, as we forgive our debtors. As we forgive those who have incurred a debt on us. And this is the only petition that Jesus will actually add this little addendum at the end of the Lord's Prayer where he says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you. Now when we hear this, 
I don't think we really like seeing this part. We're like, Jesus, why did you add this little explainer? Why don't you just leave it a little more vague? It would have been helpful for me. I appreciate the vagueness in this moment. So what do we make of this? What do we make of this, the, the Father's heart to forgive, and yet this, this statement from Jesus that says we need to forgive others? Is God's forgiveness conditional on the basis of us forgiving other people? That's what we're actually asking. As I understand it, forgiveness comes to us freely. It comes to you freely, but it should not stop with you. The basis of our discipleship and even being able to pray the Lord's Prayer to come to the Father is a previous and massive forgiveness on God's part. It has to start there. Otherwise, how do you come before God who is holy? That's the starting point. God's mercy opens the door to be in relationship with him and know him. And if Jesus had not come and invited us to follow him, then we wouldn't be able to address God as Father. Jesus then mediates the Father's mercy and forgiveness to us. And so, that's where it starts. But once we've received his forgiveness and mercy, we cannot hoard it for ourselves. We can't just keep it in for ourselves. Forgiving others is a necessary consequence of having been forgiven by God. So, this means that even if we are harboring bitterness and we haven't forgiven other people when we first encounter God, God will still forgive us. But as we enter into relationship with him, as we begin to follow Jesus, it's like, you can't just stay there. You can't just hoard the forgiveness I extend to you. It's for others. And Jesus gets at this relational dynamic of forgiveness while using this common understanding of debt related to sin in Matthew 18. If you go to Matthew 18, you hear the story of one of Jesus' disciples, Peter. Peter comes up to Jesus with a question that all of us wonder. Siblings in particular wonder about this one. How many times do I need to forgive my brother? How many times? Seven times? Is that pretty good? I'm not speaking here about trust, right? Or remaining in an unhealthy relationship. We're talking here about the debt that's incurred, that someone has incurred. And, and Peter is asking, how many times do I need to forgive someone who incurs a debt against me? And Jesus says, no, not seven, but up to 70 times seven. Up to 490 times. And he's not literally saying that's the number. Like, how, how are you possibly going to be able to count that in your relationship with someone? Like, all right, you're at, you know, 489. You got one left. That's not, what, that's not how it works, and realistically, like, you know in family, you, you see that number really quickly. So, Jesus begins to flesh out why this is the case by telling a story, a parable about a master and a servant. There was this king who wanted to settle his accounts with his servants. One of the servants that he had owed 10,000 talents. It's like a bag of gold. Just one talent was the equivalent of about 20 years of, of a day laborer's wages. Meaning this guy owed the king 200,000 talents. He would never be able to pay him back. Not a chance he could ever pay the king back. And the king wants to set up his, these accounts. So the servant comes to the king and he begs him, 
He says, be patient with me and I will pay back everything. Which is ridiculous because there's no possible way he could. But then Jesus says that the king, rather than call him out on how ridiculous his statement is, says that the king took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. The king felt compassion and he extended mercy to his servant. He wiped out the debt. But the story doesn't end there. Right? Jesus is trying to teach Peter something and anyone else who will hear. The servant goes on his way after being forgiven his debt, and he meets up with these other servants, including one who owes him a hundred silver coins or denarius. This is the equivalent of four months' worth of wages. Not 20-plus years, just four months. And what does the servant do? He demands that the servant, this guy who owes him, pay him right away, in the moment. He wants his money back. He even begins to violently grab him and choke him, demanding that he pay him. The fellow servant begs him, saying, be patient with me, and I will pay it back. He says almost the exact same thing, and he probably could actually pay it. But the servant who had been forgiven refuses to be patient, and instead has him thrown into prison until he can pay back that debt. Now, these other servants who had also been hanging out there watching are outraged. Wouldn't you, if you saw this? And they run and tell the king what has happened. They tell him everything, what they saw. And when the king hears this, he confronts the unforgiving servant and says, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And then he had him put in prison. And Jesus says this in Matthew 18, verse 35, concluding this parable, speaking to Peter and anyone else who will hear. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each one of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. There is a part of us that you can see in this parable that easily loses sight of just how extensive our debt was before God and how he's forgiven us. And that forgiveness is what we are supposed to extend to others, what God has shown us. Paul will write in Ephesians 4, talking about how God's people are to live in this new way in light of what God has done through Jesus. He says this in Ephesians 4, Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. And then he says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. The basis for the kindness, compassion that we demonstrate to one another is God's kindness and compassion and forgiveness to us through Christ. Now, I want to be clear, forgiveness doesn't mean all consequences disappear. When you forgive someone, they may still, still face consequences. There may be a change in the level of trust. If you realize that they're not a safe person, you can forgive them, but you won't put yourself in that same position again. Forgiveness does not negate the importance of justice. And we see that in Jesus. While we are forgiven, Jesus actually has to pay the consequences for, the injustice, for, for that justice to take place. He pays the consequences for our sin. 
Forgiveness doesn't mean like you act like no harm was ever done. Forgiveness means that we will not make them suffer in any way for the harm they did to us. We're not diminishing, hiding the harm they've done. We're saying we're not going to make them suffer for it. Rather than deny the harm that took place, forgiveness means you acknowledge the pain, how it affected you, and that you choose to bear those consequences of their actions towards you. It means you release that person into God's care and accountability, and it means you ask the Spirit of God to enter into your wound and fill it with His love and to fill you with supernatural love for that person. They're still made in the image of God, though they've harmed us. Now, when you hear that, when I hear that, I'm like, man, no wonder I need help with forgiveness. I can't do that on my own. So, Father in heaven, help us as we forgive our debtors. Give me strength. Remind me how you have forgiven me. Now, here's why we need to hear this. Forgiveness is central to the way of Jesus. It is central to the way of Jesus. Forgiveness is the defining characteristic of the king. Forgiveness is a defining characteristic of his mission. Forgiveness is a defining characteristic of the kingdom of heaven. Mercy gets expressed over and over and over again in the ministry of Jesus. He talked about mercy. He demonstrated mercy throughout his ministry. Twice in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus will state, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It is in Matthew 9. In that moment, Jesus is defending himself for the company he keeps. The religious leaders come up to him and they come up to him and they question to him and they question him, why are you hanging out with all of these people who are social outcasts, these sinners and tax collectors, people who betray the people of God? Why would you spend time with them? Jesus says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's citing the Old Testament there. What God is saying to Israel, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Forgiveness and mercy are the basis for any interaction that Jesus had and has with people. And the religious leaders had missed the point of the law. They saw Jesus, and they saw how he wasn't living what he believed was, what they believed was the way that you needed to live under God's law. And Jesus is trying to say God wasn't about people burning the right sacrifices. He was for people who had embraced his mercy and freely gave his mercy away. And the religious leaders didn't know what I desire um, mercy, not sacrifice, meant because they had never allowed God's mercy to change them. So they weren't merciful. But when you receive mercy, when you experience it, it begins to change you. Because God's forgiveness has no room for pride. Dallas Willard gets at this when he writes, If my pride is untouched when I pray for forgiveness, I have not prayed for forgiveness. I don't even understand it. If my pride isn't touched when I pray for forgiveness, I have not prayed for forgiveness. I don't even understand it. I don't understand forgiveness. Jesus is saying, I haven't come for the perfect. I haven't come for the healthy. I haven't come for the righteous. I've come for those who recognize they are imperfect, sick, and sinners. And so, what we need to do is what Jesus teaches us here in the Lord's Prayer. Ask your Father to forgive your debts. 
and to help you as you forgive your debtors. Make the Lord's prayer a daily prayer of yours. Daily have the Lord wipe clean your debt and wipe clean the debt of others who have hurt you. Now, why don't we do this? Why don't we forgive? Why don't we forgive others or ourselves even? Well, I've hinted at some, but let me just offer three reasons. One reason we don't forgive is that we've actually misunderstood what forgiveness means. We don't forgive others because we think we can't assert our boundaries if we do. That a relationship can't change. That we must revert back to the same level of trust if we do. And so we can't possibly imagine forgiving someone if those are the conditions. But that's not true. You can forgive a drunk driver, but it doesn't mean that they won't face and shouldn't face the consequences of drinking and driving, including losing their license. But you can forgive them. They've broken trust of society. There's a consequence for that, but you can still extend forgiveness towards them. You can forgive someone who commits abuse, extreme sexual sin in marriage, in the marriage covenant, or an extreme breach of trust, but that doesn't mean that you must remain in relationship with them or that they shouldn't face the legal consequences for their actions. It just means that you personally will not seek to make them suffer for the harm they did to you. I'm being explicit here because one of the common frustrations that I've had people share with me is this unclear teaching on forgiveness and what it really means. And this sense that forgiveness for Christians is this flippant thing that you just need to just extend it all the time without, no, without any consequences. There's still consequences, real-world consequences we experience for our sin. But we can still be forgiven. The ultimate consequence has been dealt with through Christ. Another reason why we don't forgive is because we learn not to in our families of origin. Our families have the greatest impact on our formation during our childhood and teen years. And we don't just lose that when we become an adult. It doesn't go away. Some of us were raised in homes marked by silent treatment when we made mistakes. Our homes were marked more by bitterness and rage or anger, brawling and slander than a humble and contrite heart when we got it wrong. And we learned that, and we took it on. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to live like that anymore. There's a new way of being for you, a new way of relating to others. A third reason we don't forgive is because we refuse to live by mercy. In other words, you're proud. We can't accept you must live on the basis of mercy and the good that comes from God and from others. You think you have to earn it. You have to deserve it. That's what you're saying when you refuse to forgive yourself for something you've gotten wrong. And what you're actually saying is that your word is more, has more weight than God's because he's already willing to forgive when we want to turn from our sin. So instead of those condemning thoughts, wouldn't you rather hear his words? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus says, I came for the sinner. I came for you. And this is the same pride that will refuse to forgive others. 
Because somehow you think you can come before God and say, Father in heaven, forgive me my debt. Wipe it clean. While all that at the same time saying, but I am not willing to wipe clean their debt. You think that your debt is some, by some mysterious, maybe a magical way, not that bad, not that big of a deal, or that somehow you're excused from his call to follow him and his way. And it, this is pride. It deludes us into thinking that, we're excu- that um, excusing our failures is the same as forgiving them. And so when we ask God for forgiveness, but we refuse to forgive other people, what we're really asking for, one guy writes, Daryl Johnson, he says, we're really actually just asking to be excused. And we're confusing being excused with forgiveness. They're different. And this is why the Lord's Prayer is so important for us, that we pray this regularly, asking God to forgive us and to help us forgive others. Because it's an act of resistance against these unhealthy beliefs and practices. It puts us in a position to face our debts and God's great mercy and what we will do about our debtors. And this last one is key. And it makes sense that Jesus would talk about coming to the Father for, to receive forgiveness, but also reminding us of how this forgiveness works and how relational it is with others. There's real consequences if we don't forgive other people. When you don't forgive, you become a vampire Christian. When you refuse to be merciful and pass on the forgiveness you receive, you become what Dallas Willard calls this vampire Christian where you say to Jesus, I would like a little bit of your blood, please, but I don't care to be your student or have your character. I want all your blessings, but I don't want any of the consequences. When you don't forgive, you become like that unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. You beg for forgiveness. But then you run and stomp around demanding that you be paid in full by your debtors. And the end of that path leads to judgment, not forgiveness. When you don't forgive, you eventually will hurt others. When we choose bitterness over forgiveness, over time that festers in our life. It grows into rage and anger. And that anger leads into actions fighting, saying false things about people, unfettered and undealt with, it will lead to all kinds of evil. And in the end, your unaddressed bitterness leads you to hurt others. The thing that you're so upset about, you end up taking that hurt and actually hurting other people because it's not dealt with. It becomes like this infection that spreads and isn't dealt with. With bitterness, you become a carrier of something you were never meant to carry as one of God's children. It's like picking up a set of weights and doing everything with them. Picking up a backpack, loaded up with all of these weights on your back, and then doing your everyday life with these weights on your back, these these weights in your hands. And everything you try to do is just burdened by it. And the truth is, over time, you don't notice how heavy it is, except that you don't have nearly as much capacity to love to do things, to serve, because you're still holding on to those things. And the invitation in the Lord's Prayer is to have those things put down. All the things that, all the harms that other people have done is to lay those down before Jesus. All the things you have done to lay them down before Jesus. 
Father in heaven, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. See, when you forgive others, when you wipe clean other people's debt, when you refuse to make others suffer for their wrongs, you confirm that God's work is at work in you, that God's forgiveness is at work in you. See, one of the key signs of a truly repentant heart is a forgiving spirit. Because you really understand God's forgiveness, the costs and what it means. When you forgive, you set a prisoner free and you realize that it's actually you, that you were the prisoner. That when you are this bitter person, you actually put yourself in this prison. And when you forgive, you set yourself free and God actually gives you power to forgive. He enables you to forgive. But there has to be a part, like a, a decision of our will to do that. And let's be frank, there are moments where you forgive someone and that, that memory comes back. And the temptation is to live back into that anger, back into that hurt. And we have to remind ourselves, I have actually made an intentional decision here. It doesn't mean it's super easy, that it doesn't come back, but it's like, no, I've actually already dealt with that. I've already forgiven. Father, help me. When you forgive, and when you wipe other people's debts clean, you become more like God. You are never more like God than when you forgive. And I think there's something so powerful about and redemptive about forgiveness in that way when you forgive others. Because every human being is made in the image of God, meaning we were meant to image or reflect God to the world, to show what God is like. And when you forgive, you show what God is like to the world. You offer people a window into the very heart of God. I saw a, a powerful picture of this a few years ago. And I just want to share the story with you. In September of 2018, according to prosecutors, former police officer Amber Geiger mistakenly went to the wrong apartment thinking it was her own and found 26-year-old accountant Botham Jeems sitting on his couch in shorts watching TV eating vanilla ice cream. She mistook him for an intruder and so she, she shot him dead. She was charged for this and in 2019, she was sentenced to 10 years in prison for the murder of Botham Jean. This case sparked discussions across the U.S. for a number of reasons, and I'm sure you can tell why. At the sentencing, Botham's brother, Brandt, spoke just after he had been sentenced, she had been sentenced. See, one of the things that was controversial was she was given 10 years for this case. The prosecution had asked for 28 because that's how old Botham would have been when the trial was happening. But another reason why it got so much attention, even international attention, is because of what Brent, Botham's brother, did. See, at that uh, one that sentence was given to her, he asked to speak, and so he did. And one of the things that uh, I found out about is that he shares that he had pretty much hated Amber Geiger. Pretty much this entire year, he says, I hated her. In anger and in bitterness, he confesses, I used to talk to my friends about wanting to kill her and stuff. 
And he went through this trial observing everything. And, all, and uh, when you read about this case, you hear about all the ugliness that was going on throughout this. And um, yet something that he heard that changed his heart was when he heard her apologize. Many people don't get that. He did get to hear that. And he said his heart changed and he understood that he couldn't keep the seething anger within him. He needed to work through it. And one thing he couldn't forget was the call to forgive others as a follower of Jesus. So in that courtroom, just a few minutes after that sentence had been handed out to Geiger, Brandt looked at her, who owed him this great debt, and said, I love you just like anyone else. I am not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did but I personally want the best for you. Then he goes on to say, I wasn't, ever, I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what Botham would want. And the best for you would be to give your life to Christ. Now what he did next was even more outrageous because if you think that's outrageous, he then turned to the judge and asked for the judge's permission to walk up to Amber Geiger and hug her. Some people didn't understand this when this got out in the news. People actually said, this is just black people having been trained over so many years to reflexively forgive perpetrators. Why do we always have to forgive, one person said. And Brandt actually understood this criticism. And part of his response was simply this. I want them to discard this thing from their minds that certain people are supposed to act a certain way. I want people to have the heart that God has. And what Brandt demonstrated in that courtroom, he didn't get there like this. It wasn't an easy thing. It was incredibly costly. He dealt with anger and rage throughout this process. But somehow, supernaturally, by the grace of God, he was able to stand before the woman who killed his brother and forgive her. And not just forgive her, but extend grace to her and say that the best thing would be for you to encounter Jesus. And then offer her a hug. If you watch it, it's pretty hard to keep you know, your eyes from watering up. It's powerful. But what he says is, I want people to have the heart that God has, and that heart is a heart of forgiveness. And that day, he opened for the world, and anybody who read or heard about it, this doorway, this window for people to see God's heart, unmerited favor, mercy. He didn't want what she deserved for her. And this is what you and I get invited into when we forgive, is we get to extend this mercy to others, the mercy that God gives to us, we get to give people this picture of who God is. 